You're listening to Conversations with Shonda, a Minneapolis Foundation podcast that unpacks the community's grittiest, most vexing problems, hosted by Shonda Smith-Baker. You know, you have been long on my mind to have this conversation, (laughs) (laughs) I have to tell you, between um, the work that we did with Public Allies and just the work that you're leading at ASU. I just would love to just jump in for the listeners, maybe just give them a a bit of uh, background, like how do you introduce yourself and and then we'll just go for it. Well, Robert Ashcraft, I'm a Robert, not a Bob, but but I'm I'm not a formal guy. It's just, I was, my mother always said, if I wanted to call you Bob, I would have named you Bob. I get that. But in my family, I'm actually more of a Rob. And when I was little, I was a little Robbie, but professor, it's just Robert, Robert Ashcraft. Um, so I am uh, really privileged to be the uh, executive director of what's called the Lodestar Center for Philanthropy and Nonprofit Innovation at Arizona State University. And then I hold a, a, what's called the Saguaro Professor of Civic Enterprise line in a incredible school uh, called Community Resources and Development. And to know ASU is to know we are uh, quite a a place of innovation, imagination, and impact. (laughs) So the school is actually a fusion of all kinds of interesting people and programs and students and community work. So it's the right place to be. And then we're in a, uh, interestingly, what's called the Watts College of Public Service and Community Solutions. How cool is that, Shonda? I mean, we speak this language around community development, community embeddedness and uh, impact. So, um, and, and so I've been a part of this for uh, a, good, a good long while and uh, native Arizona, my family goes uh, back uh, practically to, uh, to statehood. And, and when I mention that people always say, yeah, but you're a young state, <laughs> well, true. Uh, you know, we were one of state 48 when we came into the union and all that. But uh, it's just been an incredible sort of, uh, uh, what should I say, a, a table <laughs> set to do remarkable work in uh, what today is still now the fastest growing, most rapidly urbanizing region in the United States. And uh, that has a lot of bearing on how it is we organize and, and do what we do. So. It's just a pleasure to be here and to see you again, Shonda. When we came on, you immediately brought a smile to my face. Immediately, just, it's like an absolute reaction. It's just so, uh, I'm flooded with our memories of lots of good work together. Yeah, for sure. Let's talk about some of that good work. So Public Allies is where we met. Yes. This concept of um, everyone can lead, that it's not just a positional thing, but there's opportunities and untapped talent everywhere in our communities. And so I was super attracted to that. I think I told you when um, when uh, Mac called me and, and some of the old staff at Public Allies, uh, one of the former alumni had called and said, I think this would be a fit for you in Minneapolis. I just couldn't put my mind around what they were asking for. And then finally I went and read it and I'm like, oh my God, this is so aligned with, with my belief system. And so I worked really hard to bring uh, Public Allies to the Twin Cities really fell in love with the program. And so I know you also, you still operate Public Allies. And then we ended up joining the board together, which is where we actually got to bring right. each other. Yeah. Let me start sort of with just a bit of a historical framework here, because sure. I think it is a, a lesson in community building. It's a lesson in how uh, coming together in a collaborative way actually can create something that's meaningful, that's impactful, and that's very socially embedded in community. And I'll take you back, uh, this, gosh, this goes back to the middle, like, 05, 2005. Can we all remember that? I do, kind of. We were a grantee of the W.K. Kellogg Foundation in a remarkable initiative, uh, along with other grantees in initiatives called Building Bridges and some others that brought together university folks, community folks in a, an environment which stripped away power and elitism and could really deeply embed ourselves in conversation. And one of the design imperatives Kellogg had was, and something you all do, Chanda, because I do keep, keep up with the Minneapolis Foundation, is that yes, money matters, but so too is the lever of convening, of bringing people together in a place where they can reveal who they are and their purpose and get their assumptions challenged and and dialogue in uh, ways that may not otherwise be possible in a civic space, right? That we 
many yearn for today. So I take you back to that time because one thing Kellogg did is they said, look, um, we're not gonna match make here at all. What we are gonna do though, is we've identified, we think there's some potential around some powerful collaboration. And all we're gonna do is set the proverbial table. <laughs> Literally, we were in a, a big, big room and we were gonna set up a way and it was sort of like a dating game, right? We were matched and then after a period of time of conversation, you would move to learn about somebody else. And the only purpose was, you know, what's your, who are you? What's your organization? What's your purpose? And what are your aspirate? What are you, what are you trying to do? And I had really never heard of public allies before, but public allies was in the room. Everybody had a single representative because you had to control a little bit for, yeah. you know, you couldn't have a thousand people and make it work. And I recall moving around, sat across from a representative from public allies who shared what public allies is about. And I shared our aspiration. I said, you know, we have a wonderful opportunity. We've got, you know, in collective impact language today, we call it, you know, this, this notion of a backbone organization. We've got quite a, a support, but here's what we need. We wanna be more intentional, impactful, relevant to the very publics we serve. And we weren't there yet in communities of color and, and, and otherwise, I mean, all forms of how we think about inclusion. And what Public Allies was seeking is, I'll use a marketing term, they were seeking a distribution channel. They needed a new pathway to a growing part of the United States. Uh, and I already mentioned, we're still the rapidly, most rapidly growing urbanizing region. And so we solved an issue for them in terms of geographic reach and intention that way. Well, they solved for us a framework, a strategy, around the very publics that we had intention about, but I will be the first to admit back then didn't have as much competency. I, in other words, we had the will, we didn't have, well, how? Yeah. <laughs> we know who we know, we don't know who we don't know. And I, I apologize for the lengthy history here, but out of that birthed Public Allies Arizona in it, and as a funder, what was great about it, it didn't take a $10 million grant. You know what they provided were a seed mini MINI grant to convene, to say, you know what? We pitched and we just said, look, we think there's something to this idea. We have something that public allies desires and they definitely have. They have a framework, they have a model, they have a strategy and also some chops. <laughs> yeah. An area that we're seeking. And therefore we married, <laughs> literally. And, and, and a very small sort of grant brought us together the rest is history. We were able then to launch and we've been very successful since 05. I say successful, that's what people tell us in terms of the network of public allies and hitting the metrics and uh, and, and so on. But I, I guess my point being that, um, yes, it's it's been remarkable as you know, uh, but, but it's also a story of community building. We could not have done it alone. I mean, we could have declared, hey, we're we're relevant, everybody. We're going to create leaders. <laughs> uh, well, that wouldn't have worked. Um, it really never does. And and then and you're well aware of what public allies brought for us. So here we are. Uh, yeah. You and I served on the national board, and I'm still privileged to be in a role there as we continue to evolve a remarkable organization um, with new reach, new aspirations uh, to build on the great history. So you mentioned, you know, wanting to get to the communities that you serve. And there's a lot of people that are listening and trying to figure out how to do that. And you were able to sit across the table and, and run into a strategy that was, was fitting, right? It was a good synergistic Correct. relationship. And I think you touched on it. And I think there um, are folks that are trying to figure out how to, how to do that, right? And like, mm -hmm. what is the um, benefit of doing that, right? And so there's a lot of people declaring success without the relationships. And so, right. and, and I think they recognize that there's, there's a void there, but what advice might you give to them? You know, well, I mean, from our experience, relational, not transactional strategies, I, we had to listen more, talk less. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, we had to be open as I think we, I hope we still are um, to the idea that um expertise re resides in many places. It's not always by those privileged enough to have an education or privileged enough as I am to be in a remarkable institution of higher education. Um, we also have to remember this came at a time of a remarkable pivot of the institution that I'm in. Yeah. 
with Dr. Michael Crow and design really imperatives of a new kind of university with these design features. It's a design issue. And, and what are those? I mean, there are things like authentic, being authentic, deeply socially embedded, <laughs> not just research for research sakes, but use-inspired research, use-inspired knowledge. Well, that has issues of power and the idea that you ask other, what, what is your issue? <laughs> not what's my, what, what, because we do have assets that can be brought to bear and helpful. And uh, it's really, it's really made the difference. And I, as you know, I mean, you've been in this work for a very long time. It's hard work because we can always go to, well, here are a few success points and we're told the impact measures met and all that, but we're a work in progress. And I guess um, I, I would offer that as an idea for those to consider which is to say, keep moving forward, keep the purpose and intention in mind. It'll never be perfect. That's what we want to form a more perfect union, a more, you know, that was always about now and next. It wasn't about, you know, we have to just live in the past and honor that. We have to keep evolving. And I, by the way, I, I'm the privileged one to be with you <laughs> on this podcast, but obviously, I mean, I represent the team that's really out doing all this. I'm the one that gets to have the podium once in a while. I honor them. I also think, you know, our design around community work uh, is deeply informed by uh, some people a lot <laughs> smarter than I am. And I want to uh, offer one in the person of Frances Hesselbein, and you may know Frances' history. You know, she was the remarkable leader of uh, Girl Scouts in the USA at a time when today you'd say, oh, yeah, well, everybody's doing that. But back then, <laughs> she actually flipped the table of organization upside down. She was the one that said, you know, how you have president, you have board president or CEO and then vice president's program and down below and way down here are the people you serve. You know, she flipped it upside down and said, no, no, no. Up here are the girls that we serve. And she moved to a circular style of management where, yes, she has her role as CEO, but it's supportive too. It's a catalyst for lots of moving parts and people that are empowered to, to do what they do, highest and best use. Now, I mention that because in our work, I always think of the privilege of learning from her where she said things like uh, traveling around the country and meeting with councils and so on. Um, well, people would moan and groan. Well, yeah, we don't have enough money. We don't have enough volunteers. And we got this problem. And doggone that community foundation anyway. <laughs> we right. thought, I just had to say that. Yeah, we thought, the, we thought the grant was going to be this, but it was, okay. And, you know, she always would say, you know, here's the deal. You start where you are, you use what you have, and you do what you can every day couple steps forward, three steps back, but tomorrow's the breakthrough for the next, you know, and, and so on. And I, so I think about that as advice to anybody. And by the way, I learn more from others than anything I've ever been able to share. But I mentioned that because, wow, that's been just our mantra when, because things are tough and we've had the difficulties of the times meeting this moment of pandemics and injustices and on and on. It can just be, make decisions. What do we do today? Well, we start where we are, use what we have, do what we can. And uh, uh, so those might be a, a, a few things. Um, unleash, unleashing power of people. We have at least five generations of folks in our center. <laughs> yeah. uh, and I love getting out of the way, particularly young, smart, thinking differently. Love that. I just, I, I, it's, it's probably why I'm, I'm still here <laughs> with my gray hair. <laughs> I hear that. Right. So speaking of um, the, the times we're in, you know, I had a sign in my office for the longest time that said, you know, what's required of me now. Oh yeah. And, you know, it would just be a reflection of saying like, you know, yesterday was done. It's done. Right. Like what, like, what do I need to be thinking about today that will get me to tomorrow Right. And, you know, the pandemic, you know, we're sitting here in Minneapolis and all the things that have been going on from your world. How did how have those things impacted you and what new awarenesses did you walk away from over the last couple of years? Well, look, um, yes to everything you're saying. I'll, I'll, I'll share one vignette for me. Now, remember, we're an operating partner of Public Allies. Uh, so I would confess to you as an older Caucasian gentleman of uh, privilege that um, it's deeply informed my thinking and leadership actions, deeply. 
deeply learning and, and evolving, going through the Ubuntu training, which has been helpful and, and other design pieces. How can one not, and in your world, the, the George Floyd, I mean, the stories go on and on, but you know, for me, I guess I would just say spoke to me deeply was the story of Ahmaud Arbery. And I mentioned that because I grew up a kid in the desert, didn't really play team sports because we didn't have anything nearby. I ran, I was a runner, distance runner. And what got me about his story, I mean, the horrific murder was the fact that those who said, well, but he was prowling around a construction zone and surely that's not good. And he was stealing or he was whatever. I used to prowl around. I grew up in the desert and rapidly growing, right? Subdivisions started moving in because I we just grew up kind of in our own little place out in the middle of nowhere. And when those subdivisions all came in, I'd be out jogging along and I was curious, you know, and I'd, I'd go to some of those sites, not unlike him, the video that I saw. And I thought, oh my gosh, like I never stole anything. I was a kid. I was curious, you know, and I just, well, that's kind of it. And I didn't know anything about construction, home construction, but it was interesting. You know, it was just kind of, I was curious, fascinated. I did no harm. Nobody ever bothered me. There were those that would have saw me. I mean, there were different people, you know, they might be in a construction truck or whatever, but I wasn't an African-American young man. I wasn't a brown young man. And I just have to tell you that that was that penetrated me. And not that all of these stories are horrific. We've had them in Arizona, too, by the way. Mm-hmm. I think of so many stories where we don't know their names publicly, nationally, the way we do some. But that was one where I said to myself, you know, I could talk about a hard scrabble life. I could talk about because, you know, I was middle class. I mean, my my family and every, and we just, we made it, but we weren't rich by any manner. I could go down that pathway and say, well, I pulled myself up by my bootstrap. Well, you know what? But I had privilege. I didn't have other barriers <laughs> such as being a curious young man running along, going into a construction zone. And as a result of that being stalked and ultimately murdered. So I, uh, I just use that as one vignette of my own awareness learning, being as well still on the National Board of Public Allies, we do more than operate as a board. We're a learning community. Thanks to the brilliance of some of the people on on the board, they're saying it's not just enough to manage as stewards, you know, as as board members of an organization. We have to be learners. We have a a reimagined capitalism task group. Can you imagine to take deeply a look at the economic injustices that also contribute to what then become this, this, these protracted issues around race and gender and other things. And uh, deeply studying uh, Martin Luther King's work beyond his well-known work in, in racial and social justice, but people can remember that he moved to an economic justice frame before he was hurt. He was pushing and he was highly criticized for that. But he also realized if we don't deal with, with structural issues around capitalism that is great on the one hand. I mean, Ray Dalio would say that. Our friend at the Ford Foundation speaks all the time. I'm a capitalist, but by the way, it leaves people behind too. We have to figure out a way also to accommodate. So um, you get a sort of an idea. I'm a work in progress. I just, I'm a total work in progress. I try to not stay in an echo chamber by only reading certain things, listening to certain things. I, I, I try to, I don't try, I'm a part of other networks. We're part of a, a racial justice network and Native American group where I was the only Caucasian individual, a part of a group that I was welcomed into. And I did so much listening and learning, um, which is uh, I think just a real key. And I bet we're, we're a work in progress. I learned from you, Shonda, in so many ways. You have no idea. Um, every time you would speak on that board, I thought, oh my gosh, like that's, and by the way, I'm not here to patronize you. I'm not a grantee of the Minneapolis, but I'm just telling you, they were just so dang right on, smart. I thought, whoa, that's exactly what we need to be thinking and doing. An older white gentleman, an older Caucasian gentleman that's comfortable being the only in the room. Like, were you just always, I mean, is it because you're curious, right? You were jogging along when you were young in the desert and you have a sense of curiosity, like, Totally. Is this natural for you or did you have to grow into your comfort around issues of race and being the only at the table? Like, 
what was that journey? Was it, was it natural or did you have to push yourself outside of your own comfort? You know, was it natural or not? I, uh, well, I mean, that's an interesting question. Uh, you know, I'll just toss out maybe a combination of, of both. I mean, I deeply influenced, obviously, by uh, particularly my my mother, who at a very young age, uh, very young age, moved uh, by herself to Arizona and actually lived up in north northern north the northeastern Arizona with uh, uh, nested with tribal communities and and so on. Uh, just had an incredible nature about her uh, and about nature, by the way, my love of nature definitely from her. Um, so, I mean, I got to give some, you know, pay homage that way. But, uh, but also, I think, you know, as a young person, I mean, I was introduced to the idea that um, there's some larger, I'll call it the commons out there of public and civic and civil and community. And it's not about me. I never, I, or, or when I say me, the we weren't, I always knew there was sort of a, a bigger tapestry <laughs> of color and language and culture and, and so on. And I'd really, have, I'd probably have to go into some deep, you know, therapy to figure out, well, how did that get introduced at such a young, a young age? Um, and, you know, but with that, I didn't do a lot with that as a super young guy. And yet a, a, a dear friend of mine, deep in community development work, we didn't even realize we grew up, um, together, uh, sort of out in the middle of nowhere, but he went to a parochial school and I went to a public school. We discovered each other later. And when I learned about his background in Tucson um, and how he got involved in social change, where this is a white dude, you know, he was leading lettuce boycotts in support of Cesar Chavez. And this guy was like a sophomore, junior in high school. And I've told him, when I was in high school, I mean, I was probably a knucklehead. I was just a kid. I went to school and I ran cross country and track. I was on the yearbooks. I mean, that was it. So I'm just saying whatever awareness I had of, of inclusion and the idea that, uh, that you know, e pluribus unum, I, how that all came about. But then I look at Brian, this guy named Brian, I think, oh my gosh, I didn't do anything. Like, are you kidding me? How did he get that to actually move from idea purpose to action? at a very young age. And it's deeply inspiring. I suppose that's another reason why I really support public allies so much as uh, setting just enough of a table and a framework and unleashing human potential of young, diverse, smart, passionate, capable people <laughs> to yeah. change this world for the better. This brings me to the idea of measurement, right? You're talking about like just setting the table in philanthropy and you know philanthropy also sometimes we'll do this to our nonprofits or places we invest in. And we say, well, we want to know all of the, the path. We want to know the path. We want to know what you're thinking. We want to know every step A through Z. Yeah. And then we'll fund you. And we know that that can be restricting to allowing for that potential to flourish. Right. Um, you know, are you seeing, um, you know, changes in those trends in the nonprofit or philanthropic sector or what, what are you saying or what do you think? It's a tale of two cities, right? Yeah. You see what you're describing, uh, maybe at a grander level than ever before. But on the other hand, uh, the other side is it's business as usual. Um, as you talk to grantees and voices in the field that remain um, frustrated, right? I followed your work and there are some other places that are evolving in ways that certainly make a lot of sense to me around uh co-creating the work at a community level, bringing voices in that help to inform and even decide the way in which philanthropic funds will move. I mean, it's, I, I hearken back to the design of that original Kellogg initiative uh, led by a remarkable, well, most of the folks there are retired now of that era, but a remarkable uh, thought leader and philanthropic leader, Rob, Bob Long, Robert Long, he led the philanthropy and volunteerism division for over a decade during a body of work. And people have said to me, well, how is it you all seem to create an environment and enterprise that's been successful, sustainable for, and relevant and impactful for the long haul? And I look back to that. And as a funder, what they did was they set a parameter. It was sort of like you could think of it like a box, right? I mean, there were certain... Uh, design features, but after that, they got out of the way <laughs> mm -hmm. and said, you decide. And let me describe to you how that 
evolved is, as you know, an enterprise like ours, I mean, we're grant seeking, not grant making. Well, we became a grant maker and Kellogg sort of tested the idea of place-based grant making, intermediaries that actually were on the ground and could do this. And I could spend all day telling you the stories. For example, we, along with our Arizona Community Foundation partnered, and I don't know which one is, was the mother and which one was the father, but we were parents of what today is the Alliance of Arizona Nonprofits. Uh, investing money and leadership and writing the bylaws, getting the incorporated board. This was many years ago. Now, I tell you that because what we were privileged to lead were ideas to build the capacity of the social sector, right? For those who lead, manage, support nonprofits. What Kellogg said is, yeah, you need some capital for that, but we're not going to tell you what that looks like. But do that. <laughs> yeah. And so we did our focus. I mean, we met in communities, spent time, searched for gaps, and it became evident that having a collaborative, and we call it an alliance, not a council, not an association, made a lot of sense. But it wasn't the funder saying, we're looking around the country, we think it's good to have council of nonprofits everywhere, and therefore we're funding you, you create one. That wasn't it at all. We could have gone, and we had many other initiatives and projects as a result. But it gives you, that was one tease of, that was powerful. And look how enduring and sustainable that was. And by the way, the enterprise I'm, I'm privileged to lead, uh, we haven't been a Kellogg grantee in many, many years. We had earlier grants because that that's not the way that's gonna work. In other words, it, it, if it was enduring, impactful, relevance, then it need to be sustainable by the very communities that we've, assembled uh, for the future. So I use that as an exemplar, but to your core question, uh, philanthropy has a long way to go. Mm -hmm. Many other issues around uh, the underbelly of dark money. And I mean, you could just go on and on. That's philanthropy too, that puts mm -hmm. into question the potential future of a democracy. Yeah. Right. I don't know if I should go to, you know, if you were advising me, right? Like, ah. <laughs> what what advice would you give me as being in philanthropy? I'll, I think I'll ask that. Well, Sean, I'm smiling again because you're someone I would call for your advice for me. <laughs> <laughs> because I'm sure your listeners can feel in, in the deep, really deep and abiding respect uh, mutually, but that I have for, for you. Uh, look, knowing you as I do, first of all, it was a brilliant decision on the part of the foundation to hire you as it was whatever, however that all happened, your exit from uh, Pillsbury. I miss though, uh, not seeing you at our, our, our public allies meetings and, and so on. You know, I guess you got to just keep, keep that purpose forefront. You got the passion and uh, just don't go away in the work. I mean, it's, it's, uh, it's just so vital. I've been watching. I've, I've been I've been listening uh, to some of the podcast. I, I and I just think, wow, that's just great. I've told others, by the way, and the community foundation movement knows you, but it, is, it knows Minneapolis and knows you. But in terms of other uh, philanthropy organizations, to discover you know the power of, of what does it look like at a community level that accelerates even further uh, the purpose that folks seek for a better world. And philanthropy is one lever. It's not the only lever, but it's it can be powerful. And, uh, and you've demonstrated that in spades. Thank you for that, Robert. The, so let's talk then about other levers, which is education. Right. So you're at ASU. Every time I talk to you about ASU, I think it ends with a conversation of I should come there and get a PhD. I think I end there. I, I think I end in that conversation. Every We're time. online too. Worldwide, global. You can be anywhere. I know. And, and so and I think I feel that way because I can feel your respect for the institution. Right. And when I hear you talk about it, or when I come across it, I'm always amazed in the ways that it continues to like morph and innovate and be relevant right. and inclusive. And so what, what is the magic of ASU? Like, what? So look, it, it, the, the quick answer is the design. How's that? Uh, and I'm not an architect, but I guess we're all architects in community work. We are, you know, if you think of architecture writ large, it's a design issue. And uh, what I tell people is first, in some ways you have to suspend the stereotype and the notion of what is a university. 
And uh, because some think it's, well, it's unreachable. You know, nobody in my family's ever gotten a degree. I, I can't possibly navigate uh, the, just the complexity of, particularly if I'm first generation bound. Um, when the design uh, imperatives, aspirations sort of were introduced, it was more than rhetoric. It was also to say, uh, and we can talk about metrics that one, uh, access, right? And then excellence. Nobody at scale of a massive institution has ever been big and great simultaneously by measures. There are huge places all over the world, lots of learners, and they're considered, well, okay, but are they great institutions? When you start looking at rankings and other things, which by the way, that's a whole nother podcast around methodological flaws in US news and rankings and that, but that said, those uh, that do those kind of metrics say, well, what, it's exclusive, expensive, <laughs> or inclusive, and well, it's not you know, so great. So this design, what's different is, number one metric is uh, we hit a we, and it's writ large, the university under Dr. Crow, hit the metric of being inclusive where we're represented, first of all, the Arizona demographics, socioeconomic, racial, and so on. And that has meaning when we're close, uh, really, for Hispanic Latino population to be the majority population. And you could go down the full set of demographics. That's a stunning accomplishment with uh, so many first generation bound um, students and so on. But, but let me scale to another notion about design. If you're going to suspend, well, what does that mean, right? Well, you begin meeting students and learners where they are. Well, what does that mean? It doesn't mean that Professor X, uh, the convenience of teaching that class is on Tuesdays and Thursdays from 8.40 to you know, 10.30 or whatever. No, rather you flip it around and say, you know, well, what's possible, what, what is needed by the very publics that seek education? And you know, for some that might be at three o'clock in the morning, it might be at who knows what. So this notion of a sort of both, uh, well, three modalities of really it's, in person still, but hybrid, supported by technology, and then fully online, all of those have happened. And, and so this is a global institution, access is everywhere, yet there are physical places, uh, a new building in downtown Los Angeles, that's the uh, old um, Herald Examiner newspaper building, uh, the building at 8th and 18th and I in Washington, DC. Others- oh, That's where ASU, ASU is in these other places. Right, those are bricks and mortar, but also we're the home of the Thunderbird School of Global Management, the famous Thunderbird School, arguably the, it's always been sort of ranked number one in global management. Uh, and when they became a part of the ASU enterprise, that's worldwide, I mean, it's Tokyo and Abu Dhabi and Geneva and all over the world. They've launched initiatives, one is stunning based on philanthropy, a couple that donated $25 million to create a platform worldwide, a five course platform in global leadership to 100 million learners by 2030. That's not a verbal typo. It's not 100,000, 100 million in 40 languages, including with, with a real target of the Middle East and Africa. And think where that can go around education. Think about the power, particularly of the, the stories of innovation around women in microfinance and, and, and microeconomic uh, enterprise. I mean, so I'm just giving you, I could give you a thousand examples. So you have to suspend a university is only a single place with a lot of pretty ivy and buildings. This is learning, leading research, knowledge to practice everywhere and meeting people where they are. The other thing I would say, uh, which is uh, something we've adopted, um, is there are really three, I'm going to call them um, swim lanes around enterprise. One is knowledge, right? Knowledge enterprise. What does that look like? Well, it's, 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 it's research, it's practice, it's knowledge in use. It's how, what are the solutions needed to meet these moments and meet the future? So all the work that's going on across everything possible is happening in this knowledge framework. And that's not a traditional academic unit. You know, the way colleges have colleges and departments and schools, and this is partnerships with worldwide organizations and people and knowledge, right? Well, then there is 
the academic enterprise, the traditional academic enterprise. There are colleges, we have 20 of them. There are schools, there are departments. There, the way in which uh, folks matriculate in, and I'm gonna call it in a more traditional way, that's called the academic enterprise. And then there is the learning enterprise. And that is a, think of this as a, uh, a way in which literally cradle to grave. I mean, there's a place for somebody across the spectrum of learning. And it's not bound by, oh, I took a degree, you know, I took my master's degree, it took two years and I'm done. No, you're not done because the world is shifting and changing. <laughs> and the role of uh, artificial intelligence and, and uh, uh, virtual reality. And I mean, there's partnerships with uh, Steven Spielberg and DreamWorks creating an environment where people can come into learning, meeting where they are as agents really of their own learning. So what I'm describing to you, it's, yeah, I'm at Arizona State University, but we're in the context of a remarkable learning, leading, knowledge, impact, and it, and the rubric is enterprise, inside of which is one piece might, you might call a traditional university. Does that make, does that make yeah, sense? It does make sense. For folks that are, you know, looking at transformation, some people are looking at incremental change. Right. Right, so I'm trying to envision what conversations might be like at a leadership team table. Right, yeah. Right, like, I mean, is it exploratory? Is it always, you know, is it future oriented? Is it like what, I get a sense of the guiding values of it. Right. Right. But for folks that are really trying to move their institutions to a new place that is more relevant, more inclusive, more, you know, all of the mores that we need at this moment, what does building a team look like and what are those conversations like? Yeah, so, uh, I mean, that's a, it's a great question. Now, when you ask me that question, I mean, we have a team, right, that guides this work of the Lone Star Center. Uh, we're within, uh, attached with a school, with a team, a college with a team, central administration all the way, you know, there are many teams. And then we are a public institution reporting to a, uh, a board of regents, right, that has a whole set of expectations through the presidents, but through the institutions. And of course, uh, one data point is, you know, how are we doing with Arizona students? Arizona, they live here, this is Arizona. Mm -hmm. And the metrics around that, uh, you know, what's the persistence rate, the graduation rate, what's the workforce development uh, realities? And we have to realize that there are sort of these multiple truths and multiple metrics and multiple stakeholders. And we have to speak to kind of, uh, you know, where, where they are. And our team in particular, using us as an example, we're sort of both in. We always free up time for the ideation of the what's now and what's next. But at the same time, uh, the reality is, uh, you know, we have sponsors. We have to report to, we have stakeholders that have very, I would say, sort of micro expectations of what their particular uh, interest is, what, what their, you know, they don't want to know all this, they want to know that. We, mm -hmm. So we're sort of in this, you know, both end. And I'll give you an example. I mean, it comes from public allies. You know it well relative to its mission around equity and, and justice and leadership. Um, we are recipients of some wonderful grants from uh, banks, right? And it's the CRA monies. And really what we have to produce is a workforce development metric around their, their funding, their interests. So I would argue that, you know, writ large, we don't lead with, well, Public Allies is a workforce development program, but you know, it is a workforce. This is the multiple truth. It is a workforce development. We, many of our allies are then hired directly coming out of their service right into that organization they serve or a similar one. So uh, it's, it's not a bad thing to say, well, we're a workforce development organization, right? And some um, will feel uncomfortable if that's the only frame absent a deep discussion, not discussion, but action around equity and justice, racial and social equity and justice. And um, I, so I have to always navigate it with our team who are just passionate uh, folks mm -hmm. and competent, but passionate that, look, we live in a both and multiple dimension world here. And so if we are a genuine partner with a major bank, we also need to honor that intention, or we just say, no, we're just not going to, you know, we don't 
have to accept mm -hmm. every grant. But uh, so, so I guess what I'm describing here is that I'll use that oft used expression. We have to lean into the tension and just own it. <laughs> mm -hmm. And, and, and that's where providing a way in which, uh, voices can express, you know, kind of where they are and where they're thinking and bringing people along and also modifying accordingly is really important. I do remind folks that we're in a, a larger enterprise that is quite demanding around the issue of, of scale and impact. This is not a small proposition here. At the same time, change happens with an in of one. <laughs> yeah. We're all we're all individual humans with our neurons firing and our all of our genetic makeup and our life experience. I mean, all that, we can't ignore that and just aggregate everybody to a big scale. That's a tension point as well. Uh, it's, it's very both and uh, to mm -hmm. be sure. Yeah, let's talk about the Low Star Centers. So you're the founding executive. I am. Are you going to lecture me on founder syndrome? I mean, do you have it or what? No, I hope not. <laughs> let me tell. Let me tell you. But let's address that because I have people say, "Hey, you've been at this a while. You ever going to retire?" I, to what? I mean, I don't know. No, you're in, in a place that you love. I just meant it out of reverence, right? Like not well, out of media movement. But... No, I mentioned that because we have a leadership council, really good. So think of it as our board. Now, technically, there's one board, the Arizona Board of Rio, but this is an important, it's more than advisory. Um, we are an apparatus of sort of a state, I'm going to call it agency, but we're not funded by, think of us like a 501c3, now inside an agent, an enterprise, right? And I mentioned that because like good board members a few years ago, uh, I, I was counseled appropriately because I asked for feedback. I mean, and sometimes, whoa, you know, it's kind of scary. Like when the CEO is asked to leave the room and the board goes into executive session. Yeah. But I wanted, I, I wanted that. I mean, we try to practice what we teach, right? And so uh, the council was, Robert, uh, it's great, right? Uh, but you've got to start working more on it and less in it. Because we scale a lot of programs, uh, pretty robust budget for what we do and kind of our, who we are kind of a thing. Uh, but I'm, I can be really in the weeds uh, and, and as well as sort of pull back and be sort of a vision dude and, and move forward. But that would, and number two is, um, you know, what are you doing to make sure we're built to last uh, when we're all gone? And they meant themselves too, because, you know, we rotate uh, leadership and, and all of that. And so literally uh, went through a process, which today I'm calling it, uh, we're setting the table for a 3.0 version of the center, which will address the reality that uh, our team, uh, many of us have been here a while, they're, they're, succession planning will be very important, not only for me, but just the way the DNA of the center, because one person said, you know, the center really is you. It's your personality. And I said, no, it's not me. It's everyone else and all that. And I, no, because here's the deal. You know, you wrote the first proposal that Kellogg actually, I mean, you were the PI on a grant, as it's called. Mm -hmm. And all the rest of this that's come. So whether you know it or not, this you were the architect. It's an architecture. And that may be fine, but it may need to evolve. And, and, all, and so all of this is, and by the way, when I say 3.0, when we started, we were the center for nonprofit leadership and management. And after a number of years from a naming gift of the Lodestar Foundation, mm -hmm. we were more deeply involved in the, the supply side of the sector of philanthropy, as well as the demand side of those who lead and manage nonprofits. We then renamed and captured also the notion of, of innovation, that it's also evolving a sector, right, in impactful. Anyway, so the 3.0 version will well, the table will be set and to eventually get out of the way. And, uh, and I'm very confident about the future. I mean, the, the work is, is, is right on. So, uh, so, so is the session scary? Is the session scary for you? Like, does it feel like a push out or does it feel like, no, not at all. Okay. No, it's not a, it's not a push out. I think it, it, it's, it's, because I asked for it. <laughs> <laughs> you didn't um, know what you were getting, but you asked Here's the <laughs> only thing I would say scary is that we don't have a robust enough endowment to fund 
all the center and everything we do. In other words, yeah, we have a year-to-year -year budget arrangement and that's idiosyncratic to the university, right? Like you have to zero out all funds. And yeah, zero-based funding or what? It's zero-based uh, in budget. terms of the budget scheme that goes in. And then we have, yeah. we do have some endowment funds over in the foundation and all that. But but so what I say is scary is, uh, and, and you'll never hear me really talk like, I don't know how else to say it, but I've been told they, well, Robert, you're the rainmaker. I had to actually figure out what that meant from a Wall Street perspective. Well, no, I mean, others have been, okay, but no, but, and so I guess what worries me is that would be the only, uh, but, but Chandra, here's the thing, uh, you know, you exited from Pillsbury and that was an iconic, <laughs> is an iconic organization and your leadership role. And, um, you know, transition is never, I, I'm not, going to say it's easy or anything like that. I'm, I will always have some role doing something to, I hope, to advance the world in a better way. Um, but but we've got to figure out the financial capital long-term and other issues. Well, so too does just about every nonprofit organization I know. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, right? that's right. Yeah, so you started, I'm looking here, and I is it the, the nation's first undergraduate degree in the field of nonprofit? That's true, yeah. That's on the diploma. That is true. That's your science degree. And not well, it's true because no one's told me otherwise. <laughs> right. I mean, I we believe that to be the first, and I've not because there are hundreds, thousands of programs now, graduate, undergraduate, that are typically certificates or emphasis tracks in majors. You have them in the Twin Cities. Uh, I think of the Humphrey Institute at Minnesota. Well, there's others. You have other universities that offer tracks or nonprofit leadership and management curriculum, but this is a degree, an actual BS degree. Mm -hmm. And we have one of the very few named master's degrees as well. There are, again, there are hundreds of tracks and people will say, well, I got an MPA, but my emphasis was nonprofit or I got an MSW. And, but this is actually what's on the diploma. Why did you think it was important for that to be degreed? You know, uh, there was an era, and then maybe there still is, of a crisis of legitimacy, right? Who stakes a claim to the field? And per, and I wasn't the only one. There were some that were not in what I'm going to call traditional academic homes, such as public administration, MPA programs, um, social work, and to some extent, business schools that came late to the game. But, you know, they're a force, particularly in social entrepreneurship, and when the B-School world, you know, they do, oh, we do nonprofit. Well, what I got weary of was the lack of truth in advertising. So famous story in public administration. Uh, I won't name names, but uh, you'd see there'd be an iconic book in the eighth edition on um, public, public finance, right? Well, people need to take that. You know, you're going to work in government at all levels, whatever. And the next thing I know, it's called public and nonprofit finance, <laughs> Yep. But you open up, nothing changed. There's nothing in there about cash accounting versus accrual. There's nothing that explains the nuance of a, let's say, a community-based nonprofit organization, the issue of restricted funds, uh, donor, you know, that kind of, and I'm thinking, well, that's not, you're telling me you're going to get a degree and say, that's not it. We began to evolve a curriculum, the literature, the field, the depth, the reach, uh, Lots of reasons, the growth of professional associations with codes of ethics. I mean, there's a discipline growing out of a field and we put a stake in the ground and that's why we started a degree building on a very long history to an original program called American Humanics, which is called uh, the Nonprofit Leadership Alliance today. And that was a longstanding certificate program nationally. And that's a whole nother, whole nother story. But so that's, that's it. Yeah. Yeah, I think I just got triggered. So look, so like, I know I talked your ear off. You no, 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 it's not great. No, you're you supposed to edit this down. And no, this is, this is about sharing what you're doing. So I know what I you've talked it's to a appropriate a monologue. I want a dialogue. With you. <laughs> no, this is great. So the trigger piece is, is that, you know, I've spent my my career in my vocation, my career in the social sector. And I'm, I'm often in spaces where people will say, you know, nonprofits need to operate more like a business right. or why don't you go over to the corporate side right. or there's these, these comparisons. And I'm like, when will people legitimize nonprofits as a business and understand you actually have to have business skills to run it? 
They're not the same. I understand the differences. I understand the, the, the intention, but what it does is it minimizes the leadership that's required to actually run these institutions. So correct. (laughs) Amen. Amen. And correct. Cause I just, I get so like, I'm really trying to find a more appropriate response than what I really want to say when people say that to me, but. Well, the the most brilliant writing on this is Jim Collins, good to great. And the social sectors monograph, because I love it because he has chops in the business world, business folk. And he said, you know, this is, you don't run a nonprofit like a business. What he argued was that great nonprofits have direct comparisons to great businesses. It's the characteristics of greatness, not the sector status. And he also was the one that I love was saying about, uh, you know, how most cities, most mayors and most cities, they'll, or people in, you know, it'll always be the economic vitality of a community like, and, and safety, safety and work, we gotta work. And I love what he said because it speaks to the social sector that, you know, you can have an economically vibrant community, economic and safe, but it's not a great community. And what does great community? Great communities are symphony orchestras, amazing public parks and spaces. And, and he talks about, and the nonprofit sector, <laughs> the social weave, the social construct, which in some cases is not popular enough for government to take on some issues and it's not profitable for business. That's, there's a reason, there's theories around why do we have a third sector? Every bit as legitimate and sometimes even more important than our friends in other sectors. But uh, but you don't wanna go down that argument, right? Because it, it's all community. <laughs> it's all community. And these issues aren't, that we're, you deal with every day, the wicked issues of our times and, and the great opportunities of our time. I, these aren't nonprofit problems, they're not government, they're not for, they're community, we've got to all come together. And that requires uh, amazing leadership of the sector. Uh, talk to any business person who sits on a board, somebody department, they say, well, I'll be the CEO you know, for a while. I, I've got countless examples. And within about six weeks, this is the toughest job I have ever I had no idea, and this would be a Fortune 500 captain of industry saying that about our your work, the mm-hmm. social sector leadership work. So you hang in there, and uh, and we're doing what we can. <laughs> well, I hear that the hang in there is good advice because there's a lot of people that are just burning out in the field. The demands yeah. are great, especially in in times such as these. And, you know, trying to figure out how to keep, you know, diverse leadership, new leadership, right, leadership that have the the expertise and the wisdom that's been in it for a while, right, like, how do we integrate those those realities, and keep the talent, because talent is is getting plucked left and right. (laughs) Yeah, no, there's no question about it. Well, we have to keep nurturing our spirit. Tell you what, if uh, tenured faculty every X number of years can apply and receive a sabbatical, you know, we have a funder here, uh, Piper Trust will fund uh, sabbaticals for particularly a select number of CEOs every year to just go exhale, go learn something new and different, just get away. And of course, then they fund that opportunity, pay for it, but also then provide enough infrastructure because, you know, when this that person's gone, I mean, the organization may need some capital to help shore up some things. So not to be all in all, but certainly important. It's one lever, but you're absolutely right, Shonda. But I'll tell you, the the, the burnout of these times, it cuts across sectors. I mean, yeah, that's uh, fair. So as we uh, wrap, I guess my question would be, or what I would ask is, I know you are reading and doing things all the time. So I guess I would ask for you to share, um, you know, what what's exciting you? What are you reading? What What's some good research out there that you would want to point our listeners to if they wanted to think more about some of the things that you've shared today? Well, I mean, there's so so. Then I would say, now you're talking nonfiction or fiction. I mean, whatever is <laughs> because, you because sometimes it's really important to get away uh, and and go into another world, right? Well, let's and, talk and that then. Not, where, where are you? Where, where, where are you? Well, no, I'll stay. I'll I'll stay on the uh, some of the nonfiction side. This reimagined capitalism task group. Uh, Dorothy Stoneman, who you know, uh, is is leading that. She's just a legend, of course. 
Um, and she's introducing our committee. We have an assignment. Uh, can you imagine such a thing? Uh, <laughs> we're to read a book. It could be a monograph or actual uh, video, you know, watch um, things and podcasts. And then we come and we, that's part of our, our learning community. And so I'm going to deviate directly from uh, what have you read? I want to share sort of this interesting latest world of, of podcasts because it's just uh, you have one and some of us are even more auditory learners than visual. Yes. Uh, but you know, the Malcolm Gladwell's work in the Pushkin Industries and his whole suite of podcasts, the one that's dealing with the matter of experts is just fascinating. And uh, part of this, uh, and it comes out of the Liar's Poker book and, and, and all of that, uh, is that expertise resides in layers down inside organization and community that we don't typically look to or look for. And uh, I can send you a link to this because one of them suggests it's about five layers deep, right? So when you assemble panels of uh, known thought leaders and experts and how we go about collecting data, right? And surveys and research, well, who do you talk to and how? And actually there's some amazing solutions and happenings, but it's more nuanced and deeply layered. And I mentioned that because whether it's an issue dealing with you know, climate warming or something right down the street dealing with some intractable problem, um, often there's a solution embedded right in there. And, but, but because of the way in which we think about and go about the who we know and how we ask and whatever, we're missing it entirely. And uh, one guy, there's a story of even gives an award in public service to innovation. And we just don't think of, well, the government, well, they're innovative, right? Federal government he gives the SAMI award. And these are people deep in agency work that transcend whoever the elected officials are. And they're doing this amazing work, unrecognized, and they're not seeking any recognition. They show up every day and they solve stuff. So uh, though I don't believe it's a book, it is on a, a podcast that I would recommend. And by the way, I'm on the third episode and they're not done yet. <laughs> okay. They're not done yet, but uh, oh, I could send you a whole list of, of things. Yeah, send it to me. You know, I'm, I'm just super curious. I tried to get Malcolm Gladwell to come to Minneapolis, man. He's a hard guy to get. He's a hard guy. He's brilliant, hard guy. Uh, yeah. Yeah. And by the way, this this podcast, it's uh, Michael Lewis is the uh, and it's this uh, podcast around this issue of expert and expertise, but it's part of the Gladwell, the Pushkin uh, ecosystem of podcast. Excellent. Anything else you want to share? Well, hey, I'll leave you with one more Francis Hesselbein, because I think about it all the time. We talk okay. about this all the time. It was the start where you are. Use what you have. Do what you can, which by the way, in full disclosure, she pays homage to Arthur Ashe because oh. she actually, it, it's her quote, but it really came from his influence on her. And when you think about Arthur Ashe, we think of the incredible uh, tennis player, right? is, World yeah. but less known was his work in, not less known, his work in humanitarian civil rights work was phenomenal. And of course he broke many color barriers in tennis, but uh, and then died of AIDS, but it, and it was through a blood transfusion when we didn't have testing and didn't know and through a surgery and a blood transfusion. Anyway, I just throw that out there because she's quick to say, you know, pay homage to, to him. And doesn't that demonstrate to all of us, our ideas come from a blend of others and the richness of all that. But something she did say, and we say this to all of our uh, partners and institutions and to ourselves is the issue of being, uh, you know, uh, mission-focused, values-based, and demographics-driven. And when you asked earlier, well, what can we do today? Well, you know, are we mission-focused? <laughs> and if we're values-based, and, and Collins argues, you never equivocate your values. You change programs, strategies, people, that, but, but your values are universal. But I love that demographics-driven because yeah. if we just follow those three things, it demands us to be more inclusive if we're gonna be relevant. <laughs> If yeah. we're going to be sustainable, I mean, just from a, I'll use it from a business proposition, right? Let alone our own value orientation. So, anyway, that sounds like a terrible uh, sermonizing, but you can tell my my respect for these incredible thought leaders, deeply impacting, mm -hmm. I think, my day to day leadership stance and driving the enterprise I'm, I'm privileged to lead. No, I actually really love that demographics driven. Because I think that we have shared language to the point that you don't know if it's real or performative. 
And I think that the, the proof is always in the pudding in my book. Right. And you can tell the folks that are very um, committed to making sure that they're bringing the expertise and the diversity to the table and those that know they should bring it to the table, right? Um, for some that it is a business imperative and others, they're just trying to, they're just getting to the, the diversity element of it. And they're trying to move through the other pieces. So look, I appreciate this conversation. Oh, it's so much fun. It's so good to see you. I feel like, you know, I got a bucket list off. I can check it off of my my, uh, podcast wish list. Well, you're being being too kind. Likely you thought, man, I'm getting to the bottom of the barrel. I'm going to call this hash crap guy. (laughs) I'm running out of peeps. (laughs) That is not it at all. Just mad respect for you. Really awesome to talk with you today. And I'm paying attention to what you're doing. I'm glad you're you're keeping an eye on me. Absolutely. You know, feedback is always a gift. So if you see something we need to be doing, let me know. Oh, absolutely. I appreciate you. all be well. Keep in touch. And that's Robert Ashcraft and our host, Shonda Smith-Baker. If you enjoyed this episode, please let us know at Shonda S. Baker or MPLS Foundation on Twitter or Instagram. Thank you to Sarah Gillen, John Coco, and Darlin Benjamin. This is Sue Pak Thanks for listening.